the actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. It was, as we journalists like to say, the money quote in Attorney General Merrick Garland's speech at the Justice Department Wednesday on the eve of the anniversary of the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. The investigation into that event is not limited to the more than 700 rioters who have already been charged with breaching the Capitol barricades, assaulting police officers, and threatening the lives of members of Congress and the sitting Vice President of the United States. The Justice Department, Garland said, will seek to hold all January 6th perpetrators responsible at any level or whether they were present that day. So who does he mean? And does that include potential charges against Donald Trump himself? We'll dissect Garland's speech and then we'll talk to The Washington Post's Robert Costa, co-author with Bob Woodward of The New York Times bestseller Peril, about what the investigations into January 6th have learned and where they could still go on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we all listened to Garland's speech, a lot of anticipation about it. And basically, I think there are two ways of looking at it. One is that he was sending a signal that this investigation is far from over and that there are, in fact, high-level perpetrators, perhaps who were not at the Capitol that day, who are in the department's sights. And the other way of looking at it, the more cynical way, is that um, Garland was taking a lot of heat from the left on MSNBC and even from Democratic members of Congress for not going after higher level people so far in the investigation. Um, I don't know if any of you caught it, but uh, just last week, uh, Claire McCaskill, the former senator from Missouri, was on MSNBC saying that if he doesn't prosecute Donald Trump in this investigation, he will go down as one of the worst attorneys general in U.S. history. That from a Democratic senator. And then just today, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, tweets, as we approach January 6th, it's hard to see signs that DOJ effort is looking upstream at organizers, funders. It looks like a big effort at charging trespassers en masse street dealer tactic. So Garland was getting, I think, a lot of pressure, was feeling it. The White House was probably feeling it. And and, you know, you probably can guess where I'm coming down on this. Um, he needed to say something to protect his left flank. And that's what he was doing today. Yeah, I, I think what he needed to say and I think what he did say is that, when, you know, it's very hard <laughs> to satisfy people when you are running a an extremely complex, sprawling, massive investigation in the Twitter age. 
uh, right, when you have members of Congress and all sorts yeah. of other people saying, like, w- you know, where is the indictment of Donald Trump? Why isn't he being taken away in leg irons right now? <laughs> Frog marched out <laughs> yeah. of Mar-a-Lago, yeah, yeah. to coin and, a you phrase. Know, and so yeah. I, I think what the speech tried to, what he tried to do was to put you know, kind of all of this in context. The context is, you know, this is the way the Justice Department works. It's the way the Justice Department has always worked. You start with the easier cases, you build your way up and try to make a case against higher level people. If you can do that, you do it. If you can't, then you don't. And look, the worst thing that in some ways Merrick Garland could do is to stoop to the level of, you know, the guy who they wanted to investigate, which is Donald Trump, and to, you know, ignore uh, the norms that the Justice Department has been following for decades and and, and decades. And uh, he's just not going to do that. Yeah, if they wanted someone who was going to do hot takes and quick prosecutions, they never should have confirmed Merrick Garland. This was always going to be a long and complicated investigation. And whatever his motivations for the speech may or may not have been, I think that we can take him at his word, which is that they really are actually investigating everything and that there's they won't stop anywhere. But the other kind of undercurrent that he was saying was, this is the Justice Department and we pursue the evidence. We don't do it through Twitter and we don't do it through leaks. And, you know, and that's what he, that's what he was saying. Just hang tight. You know, this is justice is best served cold. And you act right. And you actually yeah. undermine your case and your investigation and your chances of going after Successful prosecutions. Successful prosecutions if you're, you know, trying the case in the press. Yeah, but look, there is a gap between what these uh, Democratic and progressive partisans want to believe about this investigation and where it actually is. I mean, if you actually look at the court filings with all these, you know, people who have been indicted, hundreds, including, you know, Proud Boys and others who have been indicted on conspiracy charges. You know, just a reminder, the justice, the FBI has had access to their cell phones, to their Twitter messages, to their, you know, to their parlor messages, to all their communications. And if they were taking direction from somebody higher up the food chain, we probably would have seen it by now. I'm just looking at the Washington Post's reporting on Garland's speech in which they write, and this is the Washington Post Justice Department reporters, some legal analysts say charges for Trump and others seem unlikely given that public evidence has not pointed to a grand conspiracy that involved the president or his top allies directing rioters to breach the Capitol. A Washington Post review of court records last year found that the vast majority of those charged federally were not known to be part of far-right groups or premeditated conspiracies to attack the Capitol. Instead, they were mostly everyday Americans. So, look, that doesn't mean it's not there, and certainly it doesn't mean that what Trump and Bannon and Navarro and the crew at the Willard Hotel were doing wasn't, you know, for all practical purposes, an attempted coup to get the, you know, Pence to block the certification of the president. But if the issue is, are we to see criminal charges for the violence that took place. You know, I think the Washington Post is trying to put a sort of some warning lights on there saying, hey, not so fast. Yeah. And and look, this shouldn't really be surprising to us. I mean, I think what's going on here is 
because the Justice Department has been essentially silent for all of this time, it's raising all of these questions. Well, what are they doing? Do they, you know, are they really investigating Trump? Is there a case? At the outset of this investigation, we did podcasts in which we talked about you know, there almost certainly isn't a case, a criminal case against Donald Trump. Remember all those conversations we had about about in about Not a federal case I about think, incitement. I think, yeah. Yes. No. These are re- they're really, really hard cases to bring. I mean, the statutes, uh, you know, require it, it's it, first of all, it's a criminal case. So the burden of proof is incredibly high. And then not only that, but the elements that you need to prove for a conspiracy or for a, a variety of the kind of crimes that you might charge him with are are difficult. It, these are actually difficult cases to make from a criminal perspective. And so, it's hard to believe that Merrick Garland's Justice Department is going to pick up this, uh, you know, Liz Cheney's idea uh, that because he was watching TV when all of this was happening and didn't stop. In other words, that that he could that he could be prosecuted not for his actions but for his inactions. It just doesn't seem like it seems like very creative lawyering uh, that it would just it was hard to see Merrick Garland's Justice Department pursuing. Do you remember when James Comey gave that long it wasn't a press conference, press statement about the end of the Hillary Clinton email investigation? And what do we the, remember? I don't yeah, know, Mike, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm I'm speaking to the younger members of our skullduggery audience, maybe the uh, elementary school crowd. Uh, but anyway, um so You know, what did he ultimately rest his conclusion, not that that there was no credible criminal case against Hillary Clinton on, that there was no precedent for a criminal prosecution on this set of facts? So, you know, if you take that as sort of a, you know, a a general pillar that the Justice Department looks to when they're trying to make a tough decision about a high profile case, you have to say, is there any case where inaction by somebody, you know, was, you know, led to a criminal, a, a federal criminal prosecution? I, I you know, maybe well, by there that is standard, somewhere with Donald, out there. With, by that standard with Donald Trump. You're never going to be able to prosecute him because everything he does is unprecedented. <laughs> right. Well, that's yeah. Which good. Yeah. Good and point. Let's let's not forget that the guy has got literally decades worth of experience figuring out how to not leave a paper trail and not lead it, not leave any sort of record that could possibly subject him to criminal or civil liability. I mean, this guy is like you know he doesn't do email, he doesn't do texts. He's like. He's really good at not not leaving evidence trails. Yeah, he learned a few things from some of the uh, former clients of his mentor, Roy Cohn, over <laughs> yeah. the years, right? But yeah. um, I, I just don't want to make one, I do want to make one point, though, about, uh, you know, the lack of grounds for criminal prosecution. I think we were talking there in the context of federal prosecution. I still believe that Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA, under Georgia law, could have a credible criminal case there for the pressure that Trump was putting on Georgia state officials to change the result of the Georgia vote totals. I think that would seem to me to be a more promising avenue because he was directly trying to, you know, get the Georgia 
election officials from Brad Raffensperger down to do something that was corrupt, change the results of the election, uh, you know, find me the votes that could make me the winner. So, you know, we'll see whether Fannie Willis ever gets there. She's, uh, you know, announced over a year, nearly a year ago that she was doing this investigation. We haven't seen or heard much since, but, you know, something to keep an eye on. Anyway, we have got a great guest who knows more about the events of January 6th and the investigations into it, uh, into them than anybody, Robert Costa, The Washington Post, the co-author of Peril. So let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by Robert Costa of The Washington Post and co-author with Bob Woodward of Peril. Robert, welcome back to Skullduggery. Great to be with you. Thank you. So nobody has followed more closely than you the events of January 6th and the investigations into it. So I wanted to sort of start out by asking you as we commemorate this first anniversary. What do we know today about the events of January 6th that we didn't know in the days and weeks after when we had the uh, second impeachment trial of Donald Trump? And what do we not yet know that we need to know from this January 6th committee? It's a great question. The prism in which we see this all is still something that's somewhat contested in just kind of general discussion on the committee, in the press. And what I mean by that is there's a group of reporters such as myself who see January 6th as the culmination of a pressure campaign that could be, if the DOJ or others rule in this direction, a criminal conspiracy. And that the story of January 6th is about an effort to overturn an election from November through January 6th that ends with an insurrection. But it's really about presidential intent to disrupt constitutional norms to disrupt an election, block a certification. And then there's another school of reporting and investigation that's really focused on Trump's conduct on the day of. And I think we know a lot about that in in the sense that he just was inactive. He's been portrayed in our book and in many reports and firsthand testimony, according to the committee, as someone who's idle watching TV. But I just think it's important to not see one or the other here. Trump may have been idle on the 6th, and we do need to know more about exactly who he spoke to that day, what exactly he said, what he did do and didn't do. But we also still need to know more about the coordination that led up to the 6th. We know a lot, but we don't know enough. I want to ask you about that coordination because you just cast it as a potential criminal conspiracy going to the highest levels, Donald Trump and his orbit in the events of January 6th. And as we've talked about before on this podcast with you and others, you know, you had two events that day, the rally of Trump supporters, First Amendment protected activity, uh, spouting nonsense conspiracy theories, advancing the cause of blocking the certification. But it was... That, that's what they were advocating. And then you had the violence that took place later that day. On the first part, I just want to remind you, it is not a crime to oppose the certification of an election based on wild conspiracy theories. In 2004, 31 Democrats in the House voted to block the certification 
of the electoral votes in Ohio in order to stop George W. Bush from becoming president again. It didn't work. Of course, there was no violence associated with it. So I'm not equating the two, but I'm just making the point that what Trump was doing during that time, as crazy as it was, was not a crime, was not a criminal conspiracy. So how do you connect that with the actual violence, which clearly was criminal, that took place later that day? Your assessment might be right, Michael, but we'll see what the Department of Justice does. You're right. What you outlined is not a crime, but it is a crime to commit fraud against the United States. It it is a crime to deceive the federal government in some kind of way. Whether the Department of Justice takes up that line or not, TBD, and they very well may not. Uh, Merrick Garland hasn't shown a lot about what he's actually going to do, if anything, in terms of prosecutions on this front. But what what we've reported and what sticks with me is that in the John Eastman memo that we found and put in our book, they're outlining a plan that's full of outright lies about throwing out votes, about saying the election, uh, all this fraud took place and there need to be special sessions. So this, this was an effort that was built on lies, the president using every pressure point possible You're right. Does it equal a crime? I'm not a lawyer and I'm not in the Department of Justice. But I do know that this was something that the president was using his executive power to exert his will, whether criminal or not. Again, I'm not sure. But you make a powerful point. But that said, I don't think your point is the whole story because we don't know the whole story. Let me just return to the coordination question with Robert, because we focused a lot in recent weeks on Steve Bannon and um, his uh, indictment. Uh, we now have the Peter Navarro book, which kind of fleshes out your reporting from Peril about what the plan was to try to get Pence to... Um, and Navarro uh, and Bannon are, are very tight, very close. Yeah, exactly. They were in the Willard War Room. But when you look at it, it it makes no strategic sense. I mean, the idea was that Pence was going to take this memo from Eastman and reject electoral votes because there was a challenge and then claim there was alternate electors when there were no alternate electors. There were no competing electors. It was a complete fantasy. It didn't seem like it made any sense what they were planning to do. How does that factor into the idea that this was a sort of well-coordinated insurrection? Well, I think you've got to look back at the intent, Michael, because you're right. In many ways, it seems incoherent, poorly planned, very last minute. I mean, the whole strategy, which we documented from November to mid-December up to the Electoral College certification, the vote. It's all about the courts. When they fail in the courts, they turn to the vice president as a weapon they can use, and they start thinking about January 6th as the reckoning day. What's interesting to me is that it's not just about blocking the certification. The the effort here, whether, again, criminal or not, maybe it's just a coordinated pressure campaign, which is the phrase I've come to use about it, is you see on December 30th, 2020, Bannon and Trump talk on the phone, and the quote Bannon says to Trump that day really kind of sums up what they were trying to do, if not block the election. What Bannon wanted to do with Trump is, quote, kill the Biden presidency in the crib. They wanted to delegitimize Biden. This was about ruining a presidency in the eyes of half the country at the start. 
in a Hail Mary scenario, did they hope maybe there'd be total chaos and Pence would succumb and they could have some kind of chaos on January 6th where the election was somehow disrupted or thrown to the House? Yes, they hoped for that. But that was the Hail Mary play. But the real play was always just to try to sully Biden's presidency from the beginning. And it raises the question, Robert, what if, uh, well, either what if Pence had gone along with it or what if in some parallel universe, uh, Pence was not vice president and say Jim Jordan or, or someone like that was Trump's vice president. How do you think it could have played out? And um, was there actually a way to not certify the election, throw the, the election to the House of Representatives where the Republicans had the majority in terms of the number of state delegates? Could it have gotten that far? Do you think that is a, a plausible uh, scenario? Just to, to Mike's point about whether this was just fantasy or whether this could have happened. In other words, how serious was the danger here? The danger was serious. I hate to play what if, but I'll indulge. Just think about how this actually plays out, knowing some of these players for years. If part of the reason Trump wants to get Pence involved is to have more fingerprints on the kill or the shot and more fingerprints on, on this whole project to delegitimize Biden, if not overturn the election. And how this definitely would have played out and I've talked to people around the president at the time, Trump, around Pence, is if Pence walks away from the lectern on January 6th and says something to the effect of, we can't certify this election, we got to go back to the states, it would have been chaos. And you would have the sitting president and the sitting vice president not saying the election was legitimate. That's what Trump wanted. He wanted wholesale refrain, the Republican Party, in its entirety, including his own vice president, to go along with him and echo him, this election's not legitimate. Now, does that lead to the election immediately going to the House? No, you're going to need to have participation from lawmakers to really make sure those electors are not counted, because Pence's move and his vice presidential power would be challenged immediately, likely by those even within his own party. So I think it would have probably been unlikely it goes to the House. But at this point, I hate to say that, because you had active violence on the scene. You had total chaos that day. It's hard to say, oh, well, it would have just been a dramatic political theater scene. It very well may have just been that. But we don't know. And I would argue almost no one can really answer that, how it really would have played out if Pence walks away. But if anything, the active violence on the scene bucked up people to resist what was going on. Mitch McConnell said, no, we're going to finish this tonight. Right. He said, we're not going to let this mob intimidate us from doing our duty. Kelly Leffler, who was originally there to like block the cert to oppose the certification, flipped and said, I'm not going to do that after what happened. So if anything, the violence and the mob was counterproductive towards achieving the goal that these people wanted to achieve. I think that's a fair point, but it's it's hard to say that that kind of dynamic would lead to people pushing back against the effort, especially if the sitting president and vice president in the party walk away from the certification and say it's fraud. Because you see in the House, when I was walking around the House Republican conference in the cloakroom in November and December, I was so struck by members I knew who said to me two weeks after the election, three weeks after the election, oh, this thing's going to be fine. Just let Trump rant. We're going to just let this all go. It's just going to be him screaming and yelling. They're the same lawmakers, many of them, who signed on to the Texas litigation. They're the ones who decided maybe we'll sue Vice President Pence with Louis Gomer. 
So a lot of people who seem quote normal and ready to buck any kind of chaos end up being pulled into this riptide of grievance and activity. And I just want to follow up because, you know, as you point out, and as Mike points out, in the immediate aftermath of the violence of January 6th, many of the senators who had seemed to be ready to vote against the certification of a set of electors reversed course, not just Loeffler, but also, you know, Lindsey Graham uh, reversed course. And yet almost a year has passed and it seems like whatever resolve they managed to get in those first few weeks after January 6th. 2021 has altered and that Trump is sort of resurgent and that there is a kind of a reclassification going on of the events of January 6th. Do you think that is a fair evaluation or do you think that there is still a kind of a a portion of the Republican Party that views what happened on January 6th as beyond the pale? Well, McConnell is a case study. McConnell can't stand what Trump did on January 6th. He's made that clear publicly, privately to others. But on the impeachment vote in the trial, he he doesn't vote to uh, convict Trump. And you see McConnell to this day privately referring to Trump as a fading brand and off the track thoroughbred, someone who shouldn't be the leader of the Republican Party. Yet he also is a political realist in that he recognizes Trump has political capital. Who did McConnell endorse in the Georgia Senate Republican primary? Herschel Walker, Trump's pick candidate preferred candidate. And you're not going to see McConnell likely fight Trump across the board in 2022 in the same way McConnell kind of clashed with the Tea Party during the 2014 midterms, because McConnell recognizes Trump still has power in the party. And so does Kevin McCarthy. I mean, it's one of the scenes I think that's so revealing in the book. After Just weeks after the insurrection, Kevin McCarthy flies down to Mar-a-Lago to have a hamburger with Donald Trump and says, I need your help for 2022. And Lindsey Graham, who says this all has to end on the insurrection day and the days after. He's playing golf with Trump day in, day out, saying we need to rehabilitate you for 2022. You're going to be our star. What's uh, Trump going to say on Thursday? And more importantly, I guess, how should we in the media cover it? Well, I I don't know if it needs to be covered live. I think it needs to be covered. I'm a big believer in covering Trump vigorously with context with with fact checking and with not allowing him free reign to lie, but you can't ignore Trump. I always say in 2016, people say Trump was overcovered. I disagree. Trump's rallies were perhaps overcovered on cable. He was undercovered in our business. More reporting was needed on his personal conduct, his finances, his family, his entire business, his political relationships. So we didn't wake up in November of 2016 and go, oh, who is this guy really? public figure, but we didn't actually spend enough time, I would argue. Uh, On January 6th, Trump's going to say the same thing he has said in every single interview since 2020. Every single interview he has given, his entire refrain for 99% of each interview is the election was stolen. And I'd be stunned if he said anything other than that on January 6th. You know him uh, as well as just about any reporter out there. You think he 100% believes that in his mind and in his heart? There's a scene in the book where Kelly and Conway and Trump are talking days after the election, and he said to her privately, how did we lose to Joe Biden? What is that? That's an acknowledgement of defeat. And he said it to others at the time. How, how did we lose to this guy? So he recognized privately, at least he lost. But Giuliani, Bannon, Peter Navarro, so many people, the Fox News crowd came to him around November 7th and 8th and 9th right after Biden's kind of declared the winner by the media and said, no, sir, this election was stolen. And he goes, you're damn right. And really from that day on, that weekend on, 
it's full speed ahead. And that scene on the Saturday when Biden's declared the winner days after the election, they have a meeting in Arlington and they hope Hicks says someone's got to tell him the truth. It's over. And no one, everyone sits there and doesn't really want to go tell him the truth. It's over. And they go back to the White House that night, a group of Trump allies and advisors. And he's saying, let's fight it all, fight it in the courts. And then you have Sidney Powell and Giuliani start to get involved. So in his heart, look, I can't read Donald Trump's heart, but he acknowledged privately he had lost based on our reporting. And politically, he, he wants to weaponize. I, I see the election real quick as a lot like Trump's personality on crowd size. One thing that irritates Donald Trump more than anything is when people say his crowds are small or they're not somehow full. This is a constant for four years in the White House. When any report says, or during the campaign, that the crowd was not completely full, he explodes. And it's an ego thing based on conversations I've had with people close to him and that it's he's obsessed with his brand being seen as a sellout in terms of crowds. And uh, the election's kind of the same league of his persona. He can't be seen as a loser. It's like that. Um, it it kind of reminds me of uh, Back to the Future when Marty McFly is called chicken. He flips out every single time. Trump can't be called a loser. So he'll just declare an alternate reality. Yeah. And I've always thought it's about it's it's with Trump. It's about the metrics. It's about the, the crowd size. It's about the number of people who voted for him. It's about the number of Twitter followers. It's about the ratings. He's always got some metric to prove that he's the best, the biggest, the most popular. Real quick on that. In 2015, I remember Trump was bragged. I was up at Trump Tower and he threw me some polls. He had printed out. Polls, poll numbers. That's the other one. <laughs> but he threw me some polls and he said to me, look at these ratings, these polls. <laughs> yeah. Robert, going back to uh, Isakoff's first question, since Peril came out, since your, yours and Woodward's book came out, wh- what do you think uh, are the, the most important revelations other than the ones that you guys broke that have come out of the January 6th investigation? What do you think uh, people should really focus on? Well, I mean, the January 6th investigation is still kind of in the middle of its effort. We're still waiting to see who's going to be the John Dean here. Who's going to be someone who has public testimony, a public witness to help narrate the story? So Congresswoman Cheney has been talking in recent days that they have firsthand knowledge of Trump kind of uh, sitting there watching TV and Ivanka going in and out. Well, that stuff comes right from our book. Uh, We have that entire scene. Keith Kellogg going in trying to get Trump, right? Keith Kellogg and Mark Meadows were probably around Trump more than anyone that day. Matt Pottinger was there, a few other people. But Kellogg, it's just Kellogg's kind of a strange character in January 6th because he's Pence's advisor, decides not to go to the Capitol with Pence, but he loves Trump. So he just hangs around the Oval Office. And he's this military guy. I don't know if you've ever met him. He's kind of an old school, retired military type and likes to chum it up with Trump. And he's just hanging around all day, January 6th. So he's a great witness uh, for the committee, but he's a Trump loyalist. And, And so in his ability he can tell you maybe what he witnessed in terms of who's coming in and out of the Oval. Meanwhile, the committee is is talking about doing televised public hearings. So to your point about someone, a John Dean or someone who can narrate uh, the story in Trump's involvement, is that what you're getting at? Do you think that uh, we may see a dramatic hearing with uh, that kind of... Uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, look at that Politico story this week that said... Daniel Lippmann and a colleague of his wrote 
saying all these people that resigned on January 6th in the Trump White House won't speak publicly or won't even go on the record to talk about Trump now. And that's so revealing of the dynamic in the Republican Party. Even if you resign, a lot of people aren't willing to speak out. So is there a John Dean out there? I, I don't I, know, I, Michael. I, I, I don't, don't think s- there may not be. I don't see one. Yeah. I mean, um, clearly, it's not going to be any of the people who have gotten all the attention so far. Um, it's not going to be Bannon. It's not going to be Mark Meadows. You know, maybe Kellogg will have a limited, you know, view. But but the sort of broad, complete and dramatic testimony that you're talking about, I'm not I'm not sure such a person exists. Well, I mean, history will recall that people can speak up. It's no, nothing stopping anyone who was there. I mean, you had who was the White House counsel in the end? You had Pat Cipollone there. Yeah, he could choose to testify. Bill Barr could choose to testify at least up to what happened through December. A lot of people could choose to testify. Now they may be challenged on the privilege question by Trump, and that's the whole play on. So for so many people on the Trump side, run out the clock, and that's the Bannon thing really set the pace for so many others who say, as long as the Republicans take over the House in 2022, we will never have to deal with this. And that's for if you're Liz Cheney or Benny Thompson, if you don't start having someone who can really narrate inside the White House and the pressure campaign in a compelling way by summer, I don't know, it it may be difficult. Now, the report may be powerful. They keep emphasizing in their public comments or focused on this report. But like the 9-11 Commission report, a report in a television age, social media age, I think it will be interesting and important, but I don't know the political impact. Yeah. And talking about political impact, I mean, clearly we're going to have a lot of tension this week on this. The Democrats are planning, you know, a, a, a solemn day of commemorating on Thursday. You know, hearings are in the offer. But Purely from a political standpoint, is this what's first and foremost on voters' minds right now? I mean, I, you know, clearly the polls would indicate it's COVID, it's inflation, it's a lot of things that seem to most voters more pressing. And I just wonder whether there's a risk that this committee and the Democrats in control could overplay their hand here by hitting it too hard and too much that it doesn't connect with the people they want to connect with. It's a fair point. I mean, you think about the last year, Democrats survived in California in January. You know, Gavin Newsom's a success story for the Democrats, but Virginia was a real disappointment. And Terry McAuliffe didn't focus on January 6th every day, but it was all about Trump. And that wasn't a winning strategy for in a a state like Virginia that had gone for Biden. Many Democrats I'm talking to believe they have to talk about American democracy, but they are struggling to have it resonate as a political issue. I think the challenge for Democrats who I've spoken with in recent days is that they themselves struggle to connect the dots with detail about what's happening in the states right now in terms of Republican legislatures, Republican efforts to change voting procedures or have more control over the vote and be able to fully articulate that in a broader sense as a threat against democracy. And January 6th itself as an event has, at least Democrats have privately confided to me, lost some of its its fire in terms of the voters' imagination as a, this active threat. It's, it's, and so that's the committee's challenge to bring it front and center with testimony. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. Well, you move in that direction and you could lose people. Liz Cheney is not on board with the idea that what Republican legislators 
are doing in the states is a threat to democracy. She supports some of those laws, as do like every Republican in the Senate. Some of these are, you know, there's been a lot of Democratic hyperbole about some of these laws that go, way, you know, Jim Crow 2.0, you know, way beyond what the reality is. And if you try to equate what democratically elected state legislatures have done in passing laws with a threat the threat to democracy of January 6, you know, people may not see that as connected as Chuck Schumer wants people to believe they are connected. It's a fair point. I mean, look, if the Democrats ran only on Build Back Better and social spending and infrastructure in the American Rescue Plan, 1.9 trillion, would they do better with just that on their agenda and their three points to voters in the closing weeks and months of the 2022 midterms versus talking about January 6th and democracy? That very well might be the case. But I think Democrats at least believe, and they may be wrong, but they have told me that if they don't talk about democracy, then Republicans will be kind of hard charging to the nth degree by 2024, and the whole country won't be prepared for another January 6th type moment. Robert, picking up on Liz Cheney, uh, who Isakoff just mentioned, you're a longtime student of uh, the Republican Party. She is uh, being primaried by a Trump-endorsed candidate back home. What do you think, uh, tell me what you think um, her prospects are for winning uh, that primary and what you think uh, lies ahead for her politically. Oh, it's going to be very challenging. She could win it. I don't want to say she won't, but that's going to be almost impossible in a deep red state for someone as out there as her, and I, people close to her would recognize that immediately. Probably her, she, she would herself. This is the challenge. I mean, look, the, Kevin McCarthy didn't want people on that committee. It's Kinzinger, it's um, Cheney, and that's it. Was that sm- a smart move by Pelosi not to accept Jordan and Banks on the committee? It's debatable. I mean, if they had been on the committee, would the committee be moving as fast? Would it would it be much more uh, day-to-day political fighting about testimony, witnesses, oh, no doubt about it. Uh, but to your point earlier, Michael, a lot of voters don't seem to be following the committee as this kind of 9-11 style commission. It's, it seems to be political in the eyes of some voters and, and some lawmakers. So it may not have the resonance they had hoped. But again, the facts to me matter much more than the organization of the committee. If the committee finds facts that are damning and new, the committee will have power. If it doesn't, it won't. I would just think, you know, look, when they got Kellogg's testimony about going in there, trying to get Trump to say something publicly, to call off the mob, and Trump wouldn't do it, they should have held a public hearing right away and get that before the TV cameras. That would have been new. That would have been um, dramatic. And we all would have wanted to hear how he said it, describing firsthand interactions with the president on the fateful day. You know, I just wonder if we wait, you know, a month, two months, three months after a while, it's going to lose some of its impact. We'll have thought we knew this already. We heard that. I, you know, I, I just there is a uh, strategic communications aspect to conducting hearings like this that I'm just wondering whether they're sensitive enough to. Yeah, it's, and it's a fair point. I mean, look at the, when I talk to people close to the committee, they say the reason sometimes they don't do that. And again, they may be wrong. You might be right, politically speaking, is they're trying to use the testimony to build on previous testimony to then take all that to another witness and say, what do you know about this? 
as they move toward this report. So it's almost like a procedural investigation to use all these interviews and, and testimonies to build something that they can use in, in future interviews rather than release to the public. But that, that's definitely a strategic choice that could either could go with a different strategy. I mean, imagine if they had released the Kellogg transcript or tapes, it'd be global news. Right. And we don't see that yet. Exactly. I mean, you know, the, the uh, Thompson said the other day, you know, we have testimony about coordination among the various actors. I, you know, it seems to me in every major congressional investigation I can remember, and also 9-11, there were hearings along the way. You didn't wait until the very end or dribble it out because you'd lose some of the impact. Uh, Victoria, you've conducted these things as a Senate staffer. Everyone's a right? critic of how you ought to conduct a hearing yeah. and an investigation. Right. I mean, I think that, I mean, just the, it's, it's, well, let me, let me, Put the question to Bob, actually, which is that in your estimation, is the, the the committee seems to be being kind of rather meticulous and thoroughgoing in terms of its evidence gathering technique. And is that a mistake? If it leads to a comprehensive report that is the definitive thing that doesn't have to rely on reporting, but it's on the record testimony under oath, that could be a historical document that we will be reading for a century. But if this entire committee kind of fails to build a cohesive case after waiting so long to share the details of this testimony, it'll be a that will be a failure and a mistake. Because as a reporter, I have no partisan view here, but I am a big believer in let the truth out, let it breathe, give it time to be digested and understood. And I think as a reporter, I've always learned that sometimes it's great to just get your reporting out there because other people have things that you don't know that they can add to the story. And so you wonder if the committee waits forever, if they release more now, reporters like myself and others would take that material and do follow stories and would try to really build even more detail. And so, look, I just I, I would always love to see more now. Yeah, so I, I want to loop back to a, a kind of a question or a theme that that Mike explored with you a little bit earlier in our conversation, which is the the kind of politics of dwelling too much on January sixth versus you know pivoting to bread and butter kitchen table issues, um, and whether or not Democrats ought to be focusing more, as was mentioned on Build Back Better or a variety of you know kind of social health and economic issues. Yet you, as a reporter, obviously are spending most of your time dealing with. January 6th issues, dealing with these sort of questions. Why is it that you've chosen to focus on this? What is What makes it so important to you to focus on these particular issues? I grew up loving politics, watching Meet the Press, reading the papers. It was red versus blue. It was 1996, Clinton Dole, soccer moms. Politics was more lighthearted. It was more just kind of, not a game, but it had a, a different streak to it than it does now. I cannot start to just cover politics as red versus blue, up versus down, after spending 10, 11 months cooped up with Woodward doing hundreds of interviews and hearing firsthand from people in my home about an active plot that went on for about three months to undermine the entire election and our constitutional system with a president who was so intent on making something happen that he kept the door open to the Oval Office on January 5th so he could hear his mob supporters outside, witnessed by five to 10 people inside the Oval Office on the eve of an insurrection. This was all so real. It all happened. I've had people almost shake 
in Tremble and deep background interviews because they participated in something that they don't even like to acknowledge was very real and happened. And people who know me know I'm not a dramatic person. I mean, I, I would prefer if politics was more, quote, normal, but it's not. And so I'm not going to go cover Build Back Better only. You have to cover the story. The story is democracy. That means Build Back Better is still a story, but the story is democracy at the end of the day. It, this was a year ago. That's not that long ago. Yeah, your your colleague at the Washington Post, uh, Margaret uh, Sullivan, just wrote a column that's uh, gotten a lot of attention about the role of the media in covering this democracy story. And that, in fact, we are, as an institution, still too wedded to the idea of covering the, you know, the team with the red jerseys and the team with the blue jerseys. And really, it's the authoritarian, it's Democrats versus authoritarians that we should be focused on. What do you think of that? I don't see it as Democrats versus authoritarians. I see it as it's about truth. Other pe- people who deal in truth and people who are dealing in non-truth or lies. And sometimes people know the truth, but kind of wallow in this vague area where they accept lies or they kind of go along for, for party reasons. I think the way to cover this all is the thing that I, I, I've been moved by is when people actually re- read the book, they'll come to me, conservatives, moderates, and they'll go, gosh, I didn't know all this happened. And, I, and a lot of these people are college educated, informed people, my siblings, some of them friends. And I'll go, you didn't know that happened or this happened? No, because they, 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 they're busy with their lives. I think the, the thing the media can do is not be screaming about it, but in a very vigilant, vigorous way, let people know the facts of what is happening right now and not just call it authoritarianism or not just call it, you know, MAGA stuff. Really tell people what's happening specifically, facts in states, facts in Congress, and, and, and try to just constantly inform people about what's actually happening in their country versus whining about it or ignoring it. Well said. And um, unless and until we get the historical document from the January 6th committee that you alluded to before, people would be well served just following Robert Costa's reporting in the Washington Post and, of course, in his book. The Peril. first rough draft of history. <laughs> yes, uh, which, right. Uh, the former owner of the Washington Post <laughs> coined uh, many, many years ago, when Isakoff was still working at the Washington Post. Long ago. Long ago. He's still anyway, a legend Robert, at the Post. Everyone yeah. talks about Isakoff in yeah. his days at the Post. Oh, no, it makes me a little nervous. I, anyway. All right. Thanks, Robert. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks for having me. 